Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Whereabouts are you guys? In you're in Brisbane, are you, Brad? No, you're taking our line, but yeah, no, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's Brisbane. I'm Wanaka, New Zealand, and uh, James, whereabouts are you calling from today? Oh, I'm in Byron Bay. Oh, oh awesome. life's tough at the top, hey? It is a good spot, yep. It's getting worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, it's okay. Um, it's changing. Are you Are you an influencer? Do you like sort of, uh, you know, get up with your bikini? What do you mean? What do you- Isn't that where all the influencers hang out at Byron Bay? Look at him, he's got blonde, blonde hair and a big beard. Of course he's an influencer, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It is hard to yeah. um, convince people of, I'm a professional, you know, with this, <laughs> this look. <laughs> <laughs> and throw you some loose change, you know, as you walk down the street. Yeah. I don't think I surf quite as much as I look like I do. But <laughs> uh, how, how long have you been in Byron Bay for? I've uh, been living in Byron about two years now, but my I'm actually living in my family home. So they've had this, it's like been the family home for a long time. I grew up inland from here about an hour and a half, right out in the country in a very small town of like 200 people. So. Yeah, I'm a country boy, really. Wow, living the dream you know, in Byron Bay, <laughs> rent free. <laughs> I presume it's COVID related. What's that? Living in Byron, or well, just you said two years ago you moved. I mean, two years ago the pandemic hit. Is it's that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, bloody good. And uh, so, what makes you onto our show today? I mean, I've, I've, I've read, 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 read a bit of stuff about you, James, and um, you sound like a, an extremely exciting dude to interview and what, what we like to do on the show is go back with the backstory so as you said before you're a country boy how do you get to from country boy to living in Byron Bay mate tell us your story <laughs> that, it's a long long story look I started out in I guess environmental science about 10 years ago I was living in Brisbane working for Greenpeace that got me talking the talk and not really knowing what I was talking about, but, mm. you know, one of those annoying people, harassing people in the streets. Oh, you're one of those chuggers. Yes, yes. Oh, a, ch- a charity mugger for those people. Like, I- I'm always targeted. I don't know what it is about me. Like, I- <laughs> obviously, long hair. I look like I've got a little bit of money, but probably a bit carefree with it. Oh, uh, you look friendly, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do learn to target people. You know, anyone wearing, you know, anything colourful or just looking at all approachable, you just go for them, so. There you go. Um, And I really enjoyed that, but it did make me realize that I wanted to know what I was actually Mm. talking about. And 
I joined Southern Cross in 2012, I think. Yeah, sort of my bachelor degree and loved it. I just couldn't believe. Yeah, it was so exciting actually to to study. I was about 28, I think, at the time. So I'm a mature age mm. student, yeah. ready to learn, you know, and I just was the biggest geek there, I think. I spent, <laughs> I was there from library opening hours and... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just really thri- like thrived in that environment, it gave me a sense of purpose and I was loving what I was learning. At the end of my bachelor degree, there was a pulsing gas mining company mm. that was trying to establish right outside of Lismore, which was where I was living at the time. And that was this really key kind of environmental movement where farmers, scientists, kippies, and activists were meeting together and, and Indigenous playing a key role to meet together on the land and stand up for what they believed in. And that movement was super empowering. And that's actually where I met my research group, which I'm part of now. So the team that I'm part of now is they're called biogeochemistry researchers. So most of the work they do is marine work, but they have this expertise in greenhouse gases and climate change. And they did a a kind of groundbreaking study on coal seam gas, which was showing that the, the coal seams were releasing a lot of methane to the atmosphere. So that got me super excited and I got on board that research team actually at that time. Can I ask, how do you become part of a research team? Not that I'll ever be invited to one, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and you, do you meet at the library? Where did you go, hey, let's start a research group? You know, How did that come about? Well, these guys were like probably the most active researchers at the university. So a lot of lecturers are not necessarily researching. I was in my last year of uni and I had good grades and they were looking for good students to, um, yeah, basically to do all of the shit-kicking work for them. So it's a win-win relationship. (laughs) It is a reasonably, like you talk about methane leakage from coal seam gases, but it's actually sort of a a recently recognised phenomenon for, I guess, coal mines as well like i think there's some been some recent aerial survey somehow about actually trying to quantify the methane leakage from coal mines and, and coal seam gases and obviously then you've got the animal agriculture and just recently i saw there's an article around how much natural gas gets leaked out of our stovetops our gas uh, stovetops when they're switched off it's bizarre yeah i saw well, I saw something. Yeah, a major potent greenhouse gas that all of a sudden is, is leaking from all these environments. We're talking about, uh, it's been the Australian media, farmers going nuts because their farms, you know, they go down the creek and that's pretty much on fire because of, you know, fracking. Or Is that, is that the type of research you're involved in? I joined right on the tail end of that. So okay. actually I yeah, did yeah. some of the field work yeah. and, yeah, it was out. It was in the in Tara. What's it called? That area. A long way from Byron Bay. Yeah, southern Queensland, where there's that big yeah coal seam area, and that's where they were setting the creek on fire. So that creek wow. was kind of a, a famous study site. That's where yeah, the study yeah. happened. Um, that ten years ago they shed that light onto the scale of these emissions coming of methane coming out of these gas fields, right? And it was very difficult to get that information made publicly available. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah. The whole research team actually had a really tough time with the coal companies came to the university and recommended that they be fired, basically, be, be wow. uh, moved on. See, that so, yeah. uh, doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, if you look yeah. at the government website on coal seam gas, it says, you know, that it's unknown the scale of fugitive emissions or something and they should be researched, but they're completely uninterested in knowing those numbers. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you don't, if you don't ask questions, you don't get answers. Yeah. So, and obviously, you love learning as much to do a PhD. Is that what your PhD topic was around this sort of issue around coal seam gases? No, no, no. So I actually joined up with these guys, and then they were also doing a whole bunch of mangrove research, and yeah. there was these really awesome research trips going all around the country, stopping in what seemed like really exotic locations, which in reality were mangrove forests. So, you know, they're not, <laughs> <laughs> not as beautiful as you'd expect, but like Hinchinbrook Island, Great Barrier Reef, um, up in Darwin and all around the, the coast of Australia, basically all the way down to Melbourne. So that was in 2015, I think I did my first big mangrove research trip. And from that, was involved in a bunch of publications, which led into my honours, which then led into my PhD. So I really went and dived into mangroves. Ball um, state, mate, you went right in there. So mangroves, yeah. <laughs> why are mangroves so cool and so important to, to this earth we're on? Okay. So right now we're at this interesting time in the world where we really need to take up a lot of atmospheric carbon. Mangroves are excellent at that. So, you know, there's a lot of industrial processes which are looking to capture carbon, but natural systems which capture carbon are just going to be superior because they have so many additional benefits. So mangrove forests take up carbon more than any other natural system. That's because they have anaerobic environment sediments, so they have no oxygen on the ground. So other forests grow faster than mangroves. But that carbon that falls to the ground, so all the leaves and twigs that fall to the ground in, say, a tropical rainforest, gets basically eaten by bacteria and turned back into carbon dioxide. So it's a short cycle. Whereas in mangroves, that doesn't happen. The seawater comes in and it's seawater specifically, not freshwater. Seawater is what turns off the tap on that carbon dioxide getting released back. And it also turns off any bacteria that would turn it into methane, which is what you get in kind of freshwater systems. So these coastal systems are excellent at taking atmospheric carbon dioxide and turning it into a form of carbon that you can that's stored. So it gets stored in the soil, it gets pumped out to the ocean as carbonates, which is like stable, long-term, great for the ocean. They have that in the carbon cycle. On top of that, and even potentially more importantly, they're just great for coastal ecosystems, you know. So fish, whole uh, basis of food chains come from mangroves. So the carbon that comes out, organic carbon that comes out, feeds little detritivores and little things that are at the base of the food web. And that can, yeah, form a whole ecosystem in your coastal waters. So that's just so important for birds, fish, and humans. Because we, we, we hear a lot about seaweed farming, but mangroves obviously are so important. But a, a lot of, I guess, well, what I've seen is on sort of seaweed farming, and that's so important for, you know, pulling out the carbon dioxide. But I didn't know that mangroves were, were an even better source. So what, what's the current state of our mangroves in Australia? You know, are they all working well? Are they all in pristine condition? Or is the human race polluting them like uh, no tomorrow? What's your, what's your experience there, James? Okay, so Australian mangroves are pretty good. They're quite protected. There's been historically a lot of mangrove loss in the country. So you think about the Gold Coast where there's these all these estates in, in areas where they've cut canals through it and everything. That would have been wetlands and mangrove forests, sugarcane land, which there's a lot of on the East Coast. A lot of that would have been originally coastal wetlands. So you would have had saltwater coming a lot further inland in a lot of areas. It's all been drained 
and you've had, yeah, sugarcane farms and other agricultural coastal lowland areas. So historically, there's been a lot of clearing, but now what is left is protected and healthy for the most part of it. Cool. Yeah. So and obviously, mangroves are critically important. I, I suspect this research group has a bunch of t-shirts on sale, like I love mangroves or something similar. <laughs> if, if you don't, I'm sure we can arrange something. But obviously, you've just been involved in this blue carbon calculator project, which we'll get to. But obviously, recognizing the carbon sequestration capacity of mangroves, if I was, a, say, a farmer with a, some cane land or if I wanted to sort of somehow account for the carbon credits provided by mangrove protection or conservation, prior to this more recent initiative of yours and your team, how would I actually get a credit for that? How could, how could I actually calculate how much carbon was sequestered and then subsequently get a credit for it and ideally get paid for it? Yeah, so there are other carbon credit platforms. Um, there's one called Vera, which is a VCS met- methodology. It's called like Verified Carbon Standard Methodology. It's, it was started, I think, in the US and it really is a global system there's a few, you know, carbon credits are a complex beast and they're kind mm. of emerging and evolving and super important. There's been lots mm. of mistakes made along the way, but yeah, they're becoming this this big thing. And I think in this decade, they're going to be really kicking off. So mm. prior to this calculator, there was this, this other method, Vera, and I don't think anyone considered doing it in Australia because it's really complicated. Mm. You basically have to be a scientist to kind of make it work for you Mm. and it's getting used on big scale projects so there are people in you know like in the amazon the brazilian government's using it for like massive coastal restoration and they can Mm. then try and yeah offset that using carbon credits this is the first time that we that we've been able to create something that landowners can use to get payment for restoration of mangroves it is quite a specific criteria so to be eligible for this project, you have to tick some boxes and they are yep. all there on the government website. Yeah. Okay, um, so let, let's talk about this. Yep. It's called the Blue Carbon Calculator. So I'm keen to know all about it basically. But I guess first up, what is blue carbon for the, yeah, yeah. For the newbie of the uh, listener? <laughs> okay, <laughs> mate. <laughs> Look, blue carbon technically is marine carbon. So it's anything that's not terrestrial land-based carbon. But for management purposes, it's pretty hard to manage the ocean. So it's really what we're talking about is carbon that's in the intertidal zone. So anywhere between low and upper high tide mark in this model, it also includes something called supratidal. So that's like the extreme high tides that, yeah, occur very rarely, which would extend beyond mangrove forests into melaleuca or your paperback forest, stuff that's kind of like fringing. And also because of sea, sea level rise coming, these projects kind of need to run for yeah up to 100 years or you need, you need to think long-term when you start allowing seawater to come into your land. So, yeah, sea level rise is taken into account. So blue carbon is mangrove forests, salt marsh and seagrass. They're your most common that's what you commonly think of. More recently, you're also getting your kelp, which is kind of lower. It's below its subtitle, and but they're tricky to manage, right? Why? Oh, because they are below the. So they're always inundated. You know, like so they're the below the tideline. Yeah, they're just so hard to handle, hard to 
Yeah. It's not land it. management anymore. Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Also, intertidal mudflats have recently been added to the list of blue carbons. So up in northern Australia or some arid areas where it's really flat, you have these big intertidal areas that are just mud. They have little algae growing on them and they still sequester carbon, even though very small amounts. Also, supertidal forests are kind of included in this. So the what um, we have a lot of in the east coast here is like the Melaleuca and stuff like that. So that's also part of blue carbon. So it doesn't extend into the ocean. Like obviously you mentioned kelp forest, but there's been talk, I've heard, I've seen recent articles around the carbon sequestration benefits of say whales and other marine species. Yeah. Is that? That is technically blue? blue carbon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But I guess your, your blue carbon calculator is focusing on this sort of mangrovey sort of salt marsh environment. Yep. Coastal Where, land. Yep. Yeah. Coastal land. Yeah. Cool. So tell us about this calculator. Okay. <laughs> mate, 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 sorry, sorry, full disclosure. Brad, do you have any coastal land? Because you seem really... Have <laughs> <laughs> uh, you not told me something? I own a house in Spring Hill, which is uh, <laughs> up on the top of a hill. So unfortunately, <laughs> I'd love to own some land on, in the coastal environment, particularly down Byron Bay if James is... Oh, look, me too. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. Give me a... Give me a house, but uh, unfortunately, no, I have no conflict of interest to declare in this respect. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the calculator, I got on board after a bunch of researchers had been pushing for this for a while. So I was a year out of my PhD. I joined a team of these amazing researchers from around the country, from every kind of state, we've got someone and ideally from every kind of climatic region, we've got someone who knows how the coastal blue carbon works in their area. So you've got salt marsh experts in the south, tropical mangrove experts up in Darwin and everything in between. We wanted to make a simple, usable approach for landowners. So we built a calculator that uses all of the data that has been collected in Australia on blue carbon systems. So a, a blue carbon project is a landowner has to own land which has been historically drained So if they're a sugarcane farmer, for example, and 100 years ago their grandparents drained the land that was once a a coastal swamp and made it sugarcane land, they're eligible to open the floodgates, which is hopefully not a big uh, mechanical job, bring salt water back into their land, and then the calculator will account for emissions that were occurring before the project started. So If you have sugarcane, it can be emitting nitrous oxide. The drains that run through the paddock areas will be emitting methane. And as soon as you let seawater in and flood that land, those emissions stop. So seawater basically turns off the tap on nitrous oxide and methane emissions. As long as your nitrous oxide emissions can continue if you keep adding like fertilizer, but Obviously, that stops as well. So that's one part of the credit that they would get. And the other part is then when um, vegetation starts to naturally occur. So you'd get natural recruitment of mangroves, say, coming in, uh, which actually happens quite quickly, especially because we do have a healthy coast in Australia with a lot of existing blue carbon habitat. So there's seed stock there in a lot in most areas, you know. So you let seawater come back in and you'll start getting vegetation that will start to naturally regenerate on on the land and you just enter the variables into the calculator, you enter the elevation of your site, climate zone and what you were using the land for prior to the project, what it's turning into, you select from drop-down list and then it will just calculate the numbers for you basically on a per hectare basis. So, 
And look, it sounds simple, but obviously there's a fair bit involved. It's not like just yeah. some farmer opening a gate and going, you beauty, where does the totally. money start coming? Where, 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 do the, where do I cash the checks? There's a bit involved. I'm, where there's a, a guide that you've given me and I think it's publicly available. It talks about, you know, you've got to do hydrological mapping and yes. permits and monitoring and reporting and auditing and mosquito management plans. And obviously it's a, <laughs> it's a big commitment as well. It's not like you can open the floodgates and then five years later close them again and you, it's a sort of you're committing for an extended period like 25 years potentially 100 years as well yeah to this sort of i guess rejuvenation back into a natural state so there's a there's a fair bit involved isn't it but ultimately is the key goal for the landowner to essentially get paid for the credits or the the, the carbon sequestration and reduce emissions that they're that they're achieving is that how it works are they going to get a monetary yeah yeah so they get paid in carbon credits and then they sell those carbon credits to either the government or to private buyers so right yeah how's that regulated or is it regulated What's that, sorry? Well, say, for instance, you go to the government, the government's going to give you X amount of price for that carbon credit. Yeah. So you, you go to old mate who's, you know, the worst polluter in the world and he really needs some carbon credits. Can he pay more for that? And uh, how does that work? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure on the regulation, okay. but I know that there are, you know, that this is occurring basically, that private companies are potentially paying more than what the government will pay. And it's because projects do have a realistic cost. So mm. in a way, it does need to happen that whatever the costs are, just get covered for that carbon to be taken up. So mm. it is quite an interesting and evolving place, this carbon credit world. Well, how much potential are we talking about? Like obviously Australia is a massive land. Yeah, how much potential is there for this scheme to sort of get legs and actually be implemented on a mass scale? It's going to be hard to tell. So right now it's just been released and there is a lot of land potential here. Mm. But how easy it is for landowners to actually use is kind of to be determined. So there's the first projects, uh, there's one project down in Gippsland, which is kind of being trialled on this. And, you know, we know that it's it has potential to make money for landowners, but it won't compete with the money that you would make off the same land area if you're running it on agriculture. So it's going to be more likely used for marginal land. Mm. The Gippsland case is is a great example. So for a long time, there's an area where you've had saltwater intrusion into the groundwater. So when you over-extract on your groundwater, you get that seawater coming in and you get dry land salinity, you get a lot of issues basically. So they've been fighting these issues for a long time. Now they're just regenerating it and where they were kind of losing a battle financially, now they can have a different approach and win. So the early adopters will definitely be those kind of more desperate situations. And then depending on how they go, I think will determine the uptake. Mm. Yeah. I know in April of last year, Scott Morrison made a big commitment around blue carbon in that he announced $100 million to protect our oceans. And, and, and it seems to be a big part of that was in relation to accounting for blue carbon ecosystems. I think with a, with a key focus on the, these sort of terrestrial or, or sorry, um, mangrove sort of salt marshy environments, is this, is this all tied in? With it? I believe that that is what he was referring to, yeah. So that sounds obviously, Scott Morrison's obviously keen to be at least perceived as being sort of <laughs> pro-environment, but yeah. ultimately there is a lot of money being put behind There's- something like this. And now all of a sudden we've got a, a means of actually calculating the carbon credits associated with doing this works. 
It sounds like it's actually like obviously we're early days and, and the people that are first to market whatever will probably do very well. And at this stage, it's, we've got the methodology. We just need the, almost the, the, the farmers and landowners to actually take the initiative, actually do it and, and I guess see if they can generate sufficient revenue, basically. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and since it has been released, I've had a lot of contact from startups and carbon credit yeah. companies trying to work out how to use it. So we're, in, we're at that point where everyone's kind of scrambling to be – the front runner, but no one knows quite how to to do this yet. Yeah, no. yeah. And, it's and a really think, interesting time. Yeah, and from my perspective, there's no shortage of opportunities. Like I talked about the mass of Australia, but I'm thinking of all the sort of marginal cane land up sort of, you know, north exactly. East Australia, yeah. like all the Bowen Basin and the all the sort of up near Cairns, et cetera. Like there's a lot of very marginal cane land with a whole bunch of drains that, you know, mm-hmm. if they didn't, cane farm and just let the uh, salt waters come back in and regenerate some of these mangrove environments the, the land area alone and obviously the ability to sequester that carbon is extremely large i would have thought and if there's some financial incentive for a farmer to at least give it a go yeah i reckon there'd be a lot of interest but like you said there's probably farmers are probably going to need help to actually get their head around all the work involved the permits the, the mapping the analysis etc yeah and i guess that's where they sort of the, the middleman comes in the the carbon credit expert um such as our mate Corey hancock who's been on the show a few times i guess they will need help but it's just going to be a very interesting time i guess moving forward but recognizing it's not just about carbon as well if we can restore these mangrove environments like they provide, as you indicated, they provide a whole bunch of other benefits, you know, ecology, biodiversity, water quality, et cetera. So we're also, you know, I know that in the pipeline there, there's people who are really trying to get all of the other benefits acknowledged financially, basically. So we can kind of try to stack credits for biodiversity and for potentially for water quality or at least have the, the full ecosystem service recognised and given a monetary value. And I think that has to happen in farming and in, in other land management areas, you know, because the critical issues that we face now are not just carbon related. You know, we're, biodiversity loss is as critical, mm. if not more so, than climate change. Mm. So we're losing species just so rapidly. And also issues around like, nutrients so nitrogen and phosphorus are really critical they're not they're not talked about as much but farming well i shouldn't say farming because it's actually food consumption you know like mm. linking all of us individually mm. to the problems just plays the biggest role you know like for providing financial incentives for landowners who are agricultural landowners in all different areas of the world basically they need to be kind of given these incentives to basically do the right thing for biodiversity for carbon for nutrient cycling yeah. and it's not just carbon or farmers for me we've got to get a uh, have a paradigm shift around incentivizing all environmental protection and conservation ocean protect we stop about seven tons of pollution going to our oceans waterways every day we generally do that because there's a regulation associated with our clients to do it there's no real incentive to actually do it really so and obviously the more plastic that flows into our oceans and waterways, the more carbon emissions we have from that, that plastic, et cetera, breaking down. It would actually be a great, you know, using just one example, providing some incentive to actually reduce pollutant loads going to our ocean would be yes. fantastic. But yeah. so obviously we're, you know, we've, we've sort of provided a, a framework around carbon credits for land-based systems and obviously now they're sort of intertidal area. But sort of thinking bigger picture, the more we can sort of extend the incentivization of environmental protection all the better it has to yes yeah yeah 
Our last guest, Sarah Seabrock, said that uh, this is the next 10 years are so important, we can't get above that 1.5 degree threshold. It's actually kind of invigorating and exciting. We're actually living in, hopefully, yes. we need to change, we have to change, and we're going to change. And the next 10 years are so critical, as you said, James, you know, like we are living and breathing. And, you know, we want to be able to look back and go, yeah, we were there, we were part of the movement, we got this shift turned around somehow because, as you say, it's not just carbon, it's, you know, biodiversity, you know, increased weather. It just goes on. You can't just go, look, we've just got to try this one thing. We've got to do it all. And to mm. Brad's point, unless you get it regulated or somehow incentivized, how's that going to happen? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I guess embracing, like I don't want to sound like a capitalist pig, but I, I probably will, <laughs> embracing capitalism, if this is the decade of change, if need rapid change, we do need to provide a financial incentive to do environmental protection. And I guess from, from my mind, we kind of need to appropriately account for, for the environmental goods. For me, the blue carbon calculates is one aspect of that, you know. So that's great. I'm, I'm hoping that this will get legs, but obviously I'm hoping it'll actually extend into further. Like I'm still unknown as to whether there's a similar calculator or framework around, you know, carbon sequestration for kelp farms and, and like I said, marine species protection, et cetera. But if we can sort of, you know, figure this out, it, let's extend it. But I guess, I guess the other question I had for you, well, obviously we've, we've talked a lot about farmers and private landowners. I would have thought the state government would own fairly large tracts of sort of mangrove environments and, and potential areas that, we, that, that they could actually tap into carbon credits for. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. So when we had kind of a preliminary release of this calculator a few months ago, a lot of the people attending that and kind of wanting to use it and give feedback were small council. So yes, I believe that that will play into it, but I'm not sure because at the same time, the pool of money, I don't really know the regulations on eligibility for for applicants other than for private landowners. But I guess I just wanted to touch back as well on what you guys were both saying is that I, I really feel the same in a way. I feel really excited for this decade. I believe it is a very critical one. And at the same time, it feels like there is a momentum that is finally gathering real speed with um, the COP26. Like I just was looking at the the key, the top three outcome goals, sorry, for the COP26 were one, reduce global emissions to a net zero by 2050, uh, two, protect communities and natural habitat, and three, to mobilise finance. So basically, yeah, providing money for these essential changes. It's so... Yeah. And, you know, there's all of the, the big corporate giants are doing this, you know, and way behind them are governments. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. We've seen it certainly in the last five years. Mm. You've gone, Coca-Cola gone, have gone from, you know, out of sight, out of mind, not my problem, to now they are jumping on everything that they can to be, you know, whether it's making Coke bottles into plastic shoes or sponsoring this and sponsoring that. And it's about bloody time, you know, and they're only doing it now really just uh, because of public pressure. But there will come a time, there needs to come a time where they have to do it because it's going to financially affect them. How can the biggest producer of plastic bottles in the whole world get away with not helping out the environment in, in, in a huge taxable way? And that's just, you know, one example. You go to Amazon, for instance. God, his stocks have boomed through this pandemic. But you think about the amount of waste that's always gone with that massive boom. I mean, you buy anything from Amazon or, or anything online, 
that comes to me. The other day, my mum had something arrived, and it was, it was some cosmetic thing. It was something about this big, right? You know, about you know, ten centimetres long. It came wrapped up in three bits of plastic and then a cardboard box. You know, and I'm like, oh, oh, mate, you, you know. So it is very important, as you said, James. These large corporates are starting to admit they are starting to to front up, and it is exciting, it is invigorating, um, because I don't, five years ago or four years ago when we started this podcast, geez, after that first season, I was pretty depressed, Brad. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's a it's a big problem, yeah, for sure. Last year, I was teaching a unit at the uni called Global Environmental Issues, and then <laughs> which was very um, yeah, wasn't the most positive experience. And then I kind of dived into a regenerative agriculture unit, yeah, and that actually was I found quite depressing too because there were kind of so many holes in the claims. I guess yeah, the people that I was teaching with just found you know all the things that weren't working with regenerative agriculture. Mm. And it was like, at the end of the year, I was just so done. But Can you go into that a bit more? Um, I'd, I'd like to understand. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear it. I'll probably chime in as well. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm not an expert in regen ag, so I won't pretend to be. But, I mean, I was looking at, at the same time as building this calculator, I was looking at some of the claims in grazing. This is the mm. thing, right? Mm. Grazing as a method for carbon sequestration, mm. I mm. Am very skeptical. So carbon sequestration. So, sorry to say that in a, in a Jeremy Brown way. So there is a kind of a push to manage grazing land by moving cattle around. Yep. Yeah, in high density, kind of packing them together, mimicking a wild herd, and increasing the amount of grass cover on land. And there's the claim that that is taking up a lot of atmospheric carbon dioxide and storing it. Right. There is some truth in this for sure. Historically, if you have been overgrazing your land, if you've been running a lot of cows and not just having one giant paddock and cows can go anywhere at any time, they just eat it till it's bare dirt. You can improve on that for sure by managing cows using management practices to stop them from just grazing it till it's bare dirt. You're going to increase the amount of living plant material, which is increasing your carbon storage. So if you switch practices, you will increase the carbon. But it's not like once you've reached that new threshold, once you've got healthy grass, it's not going to continually be sequestering. It's not going to be continually driving carbon to deeper into the soil profile. So that's the claim. Once you get there, then it kind of stops. Whereas a mangrove, it keeps going. Everything that falls to the floor is buried and it just keeps going. But the thing is, the massive land area of agriculture means that any change is is a big change. So I don't want to take away from the importance of making that change, but there seems to be this really optimistic hope that if you just move the cows differently, that the whole, you know, all environmental issues will cease. And cattle definitely have their many other issues aside, you know, they emit a lot of methane. There's a lot of research into that solution. So there's all these research papers into um, different types of algae and seaweed that you can feed cattle to reduce methane. But so far, none of them are the silver bullet, right? They potentially release ozone. So they might have a suite of other issues. Can we sustainably produce enough yeah, of the bacteria, algae to, you know, to manage the scale of cattle? I don't think so so anyway let me unleash myself for two seconds uh, long story short I, I think the whole thing's bullshit <laughs> ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm actually a real advocate of regenerative agriculture. But regenerative agriculture doesn't necessarily have to mean with cows or at least with the, what they call holistic grazing practices. It's, it's like what you mentioned, you know, using cattle, trying to mimic sort of a wild roaming bisons, et cetera, that they basically cordon off certain sections, let the land recover. And the, basically the, the, the cattle are only in sort of one twentieth of the land or thereabouts every so often. So the idea being cattle add carbon to the soil, the soil carbon increases and that sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere, et cetera. And it all sounds great. It's great for, it is great for soil health relative to conventional grazing practices. But in terms of a carbon sequestration perspective, the numbers just don't add up. They can't even achieve net zero emissions in their own property boundary. The mm. reason being because, as you indicated, cows emit a lot of methane. The greenhouse gas impact of that methane emissions dwarfs what could possibly be achieved through carbon sequestration in the soil. So for someone to say, oh, I'm... I'm Helping climate change by using holistic grazing. It's absolute rubbish. Simple as that. You're comparing against fairly unsustainable practice anyway. You know, you, you, holistic grazing relative to conventional grazing. But the best thing you could do generally for land is actually just rewild the land, let it basically return to its natural condition, just like what James is describing for mangrove environments. The best thing that people can do is essentially get out of the way. But obviously recognising that probably in those initial stages there will be some initial management required. And the carbon sequestration uh, potential of rewilded areas completely dwarfs anything that could possibly be achieved through holistic grazing and regenerative agriculture. It's as simple as that. From my mind, it's just the cattle grazing, so the cattle industry greenwashing themselves by pretending to be sustainable. And and it's not just, I haven't been just hanging around green hugging hippies getting this information. I actually went to a um a cattle association webinar about six months ago and they acknowledged this. The 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 head of the cattle grazing association got up and said, Yeah, we've got to encourage people to eat meat and we're environmentally friendly. And the scientists got up and said, you know what? Fundamentally we just can't even achieve net zero in our own property boundary. To achieve net zero or some sort of carbon offset, they actually have to offset themselves. So they basically have to take land and and basically rewild it external to their grazing environment. So, yeah, that's my perspective. It's actually interesting because I was going to ask James before, so who funds your work? You're in the blue carbon zone, and I Googled blue carbon calculators. I'm not sure if I've got the right one because there's so many so many blue carbon websites out there. Who's funding the research about regenerative farming? To Brad's point, who's funding it? Every organisation or, you know, every industry is out there trying to do their best and carbon offsets and this and that, but who's actually regulating 
the, the independent stuff. And that's what I was going through before, you know. Who's going, well, this system is actually, you know, sound. So who decides whether your calculator is good enough? Well, that's a good question because that has been the issue with carbon credits, right? So, and I guess that's something that is fantastic about this blue carbon calculator is that it was a government initiative. So Mm. all of the funding for it was directly through the clean energy regulator, which is that branch of the government, which is responsible for trying to, you know, reduce emissions. All of the research that went into it was funded by the Australian Research Council, which is where all of the academic research, kind of non-biased blue sky research is happening, you know. There's no industry link, you know, in this research. To play deals advocate, who's got the most amount of land to get the financial gain for the carbon credit initiative? Is that going to be the government? You know, when, when Brad asked you before, you know, how much of the land is private, how much of the land is public, and you're like, oh, you know, I really don't know that mix. If I had the most to gain, I'm sure I'd fund it. I'm not saying that that is um, taking anything away from the great work you're doing. I'm just saying there's always, you've always got to go to the money trail. Like, you know, you yeah. see there were holes before in, in that study. Well, I'd be surprised in this case because... To be honest, it wasn't an easy process to get this thing um, over the line. So it was a lot of hard work from individuals within Clean Energy Regulator to make this happen. And I think it was nothing to do with um, Scott Morrison, to be honest. he mm. It was signed off on before he came in and I don't think he wanted a bar of it. So I don't think the government is particularly interested in this. And also, like, and if we're talking about emissions and, and money, it is a drop in the ocean, you know, like the... The amount of carbon this thing's going to take up and offset compared to industry is is not a lot. Industry is massive. The scale of emissions from industry and I don't mean to sound pessimistic at all, but to, I can't remember what season it was. Remember the study that was done about the balloons? Oh yeah, by the uh, National American National uh, Balloon Association, who did a study of to work out how quickly balloons degrade in the environment and obviously their potential risk is to uh, wildlife and their study uh, which is very dubious showed that balloons break down and I'll quote like oak leaves uh, so very rapidly <laughs> and have no impact on the environment and look that that was actually that science was for 30 years for 20 30 years yeah. until yeah. Jennifer Lavers and uh, one of her colleagues did an assessment. Uh, we had a podcast about this. That's why we sort of talk about it. And, and they basically showed it was complete rubbish. Uh, balloons don't break down at all. But people around the world relied on that for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Like, oh, God, there's been a peer-reviewed study done by the Balloon Association. <laughs> <laughs> but Jeremy's question is, is I think, like, whilst it's great, great to hear that, you know, it does seem to be impartial, et cetera. I think these questions are very valid. Yes. There's always vested interests and obviously the government has a vested interest in actually being perceived as being doing great work in the climate change space. If, and if there's, you know, if there was a way of very easily and cheaply sequestering a whole bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, look, maybe the Australian government might actually be interested in actually doing that, even if it wasn't scientifically robust. But obviously, it's there's a, there's a whole bunch of individuals like yourself involved in actually ensuring the methodology is scientifically sound and robust. And and obviously, there's it needs to be backed in the field by appropriate auditing. You can't just, as a farmer, say, yeah, I'm going to do this and trust me, it's all hunky-dory. Where's the check? There is a whole bunch of ongoing monitoring and reporting that needs to be done to make sure that you are doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like there's, I think last year, a bunch of carbon credits bought by Microsoft off a, off a farmer and, you know, I think they turned out to 
to not stand up the test, you know, like, so I think there's been a lot of history. I think in forestry in the US as well, there was kind of famous case of overselling of carbon credits. And it's definitely been a space where, you know, you bring in industry and independent people, you know, auditing and, and anything can happen. So that you can be really large kind of typically overestimates of how much carbon's taken up. And yeah. it's a good to be skeptical, like you guys are being. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think this this project, because it was really built by scientists who were kind of independent and a whole team of people, not just a few individuals, but really people from around the whole country and using, pulling all the data from the country together to, to mm. build it. I think it's quite a, a unique method and it really did give me a lot of optimism at the same time, I would say that my optimism has got nothing to do with the Australian government because you, know, you, look, at the, you look at the global situation and commitments of other countries and we are just, um, yeah, completely, you know, lagging. It's just blatant. It's, it's blatant and it's embarrassing, right? I mean, it's I'm, embarrassing. I, I consider myself to be half New Zealander, half Australian and and proud of both. It is embarrassing. Just going back quick, I just Googled the price of one carbon credit in New Zealand is $38.50. Mm-hmm. Now, and then in Australia, it said the price is about $16 per tonne. Is there not an international carbon rate or is it is it um, region specific? He's going up and down all over the place, yeah. Honestly, they're almost like a Bitcoin, you know. They're almost like a cryptocurrency. Mm. It's this fluctuating and unclear space, carbon credits. How can it fluctuate? Is a certain amount of carbon in the air... You know, yeah. like, how can it fluctuate like the cryptocurrencies? You know, I don't, I don't understand enough about it. Um, but I just, I'm like, well, hold on, how can it be different in New Zealand to what it is? Yeah, Australia. I mean, Australian credit. Yeah, I don't know who set the Australian carbon credit value, but I know that it is changing. I believe that it's in going up, and that is to meet the demand and the cost of projects, and also industries and their ability to put money into offsetting themselves. Yeah, I cannot clarify that more, though, unfortunately. Like That's what the Ocean Protect podcast is all about, Brad. It's clarify. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one question I did have for you, you touched briefly, we, we talked about the magnitude, but just getting back to this because I'm, I'm keen to get my head around it. So as a comparison, I think the Australian government's made a commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, relative to 2005 by 26 to 28% by 2030. Have you got a feel for... Okay, over that twenty six to twenty eight percent of reduced emissions, how, how much could be achieved through blue carbon in this sort of intertidal environment? I think if if everyone really got on board blue carbon, it would still only be one or two percent. You know, mm, yeah, it's not going to. You know, the the real changes are going to have to come from the major emitters. So, and so, what does that mean, though, James? Like you've been in this space for a while, like, and you talk to your students about. You're obviously uh, the doom and gloom of environmental issues, but what needs to change in this space? So blue carbon has a small role to play. What what are the big ticket items? Well, we know the, the industries, I think, that are the major emitters. So since we're talking to individuals here, the other major emitter is food production, which in turn is food consumption, right, which is us. Mm. So the footprint of food production is big and animal agriculture is a large contributor and then non-local. So the issue with kind of this broad scale agriculture is 
the shipping around of things that's required. So, mm. you know, like shipping of phosphorus from Morocco to apply to then ship grain to Europe to then make things that then get shipped back like that is another large part of the issue aside from just industry. So industry being all of the mining and fabrication and all of the things that make the kind of tangible parts of our lives because they're, mm. We're not going to change them, right? We're not going to mm. say, I'm not going to buy a computer anymore because I want to. Mm. Like we're part of society, you know. But I think as an individual, the things you can do are buy it locally and support small-scale local farms as much as you can and, yeah, maximise plant-based diet. You're singing to the choir here, or at least one. Uh, well, actually, two members of the choir. I, I'm, I've been plant based for over seven years now, and Jeremy. I've got to pick a veggie garden at home. That's all. <laughs> 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 you love going to veggie garden. But Jeremy and myself have had many discussions over the last few years about uh, the benefits of, in, of a plant based diet. So it's interesting to get your perspective as well. Yeah, but yeah look, it's, it's obvious. You don't have to eat meat. It's better for the environment, uh, and you and you obviously look far better looking as well as a, as a result. So well, I don't you know, know if I'd agree with that because I do still eat meat, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I still do eat meat, but um, I am. It is my intention to to phase that out. Yeah, I guess because I wasn't hasn't been so clear to me until recently. So I guess I'm becoming more aware of it. I've got some uh, smoothie recipes for you, James. It'll change your life. Sweet, bring it on. <laughs> no, and it is. It's actually a, it's a challenging thing to do. I think because it's such a cultural thing. Our diet, you know. And it's a, it's a challenging thing to look at and go far out. Do I actually want to change that? And especially when the world around you is like just carrying on business as usual. Yeah. That, you know, I've always kind of avoided making too much individual sacrifice, especially because so much of my work is just kind of focused yeah. on this stuff. I feel like I could just go insane and get really angry at society if I kind of sacrifice too much, you know? <laughs> it, it is just touching on the point there. It, it is generational. For instance, shout out to my lovely mother, Candy, who turned 69 Thursday out last week. I said, Candy, what do you want? You know, Candy's uh, terminally ill, not well, but, you know, what do you want? And she said, oh, I just want my family around here and um, maybe cook some food. So, you know, at the end of that day, I'd cooked four gauge of pork, two chickens, two eye fillets of beef and about 20 lamb sausages. And <laughs> in this demographic down here in Wanaka, New Zealand, you, you know, it all went. It all went that night. It just like the amount of meat consumption was just unbelievable. That's generational. That, that's Wanaka. That's, that's what you do. You sit down and get your rice. You, you do all that. To try and come down here and get some personal change out of the people down the deep south, it's going to be very difficult. But Brad and I have been talking about this uh, for a long time. The messaging from the vegan community to date has been fucking horrible. You know, <laughs> like, don't be so angry about things. You know, if they came, and Brad admits this, the marketing team at vegan headquarters, you know, go, you know, vegan headquarters. That's what you're hanging oh, out with. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You hit something, and, and sure, we need protests, Brad, I agree with you. Sure, we need people out there, you know, chain themselves up to, um, you know, farm gates, et cetera, or, or I believe, Brad, you were out harassing people recently, or have you not done that yet? But- I was participating in an Anonymous for the Voiceless activism campaign, just standing, in the, standing, not shouting, in Queen Street Mall in Brisbane, just like the, the old charity mugger, holding a TV screen, show, just showing the footage of out of animal slaughterhouses. So. But, but what I'm saying is is you would get, and we're seeing this, if you turn around to people and say, don't do this, you can't have that, then they 
they go, oh, don't tell me what to do. But if you say, for instance, hey, guys, how about you just have three days off the meat per week, way better for your health, way better for this, right? You know, instantly you'd be like, oh, great, you know. So I think look, we, t- we talked about just – 20 minutes ago about how this is the decade of change, how we need massive change. And all of a sudden you guys are saying, oh, it's too hard. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to make too much for change. To, to achieve change, change comes first from within. So to, and if, are, you, are you on this podcast with us, James? When did I say that? I did not say that. <laughs> I won't get involved in this. Anyway, James <laughs> referred to the fact, and I agree, if we just, this is the decade of change. We need significant change. We do not have the indulgence of continuing with the status quo. And change comes within first. We cannot point the finger at government, animal agriculture industry, fossil fuel burners, unless we get our own uh, house in order. And for me, the easiest thing you can do, you can literally do it in your next meal, is to reduce your consumption of animal products. Now, James talks about it being a sacrifice. I can tell you after seven years of having a a whole food plant-based diet, it is in no way, in any way, shape or form, a sacrifice. I feel better. I do triathlon, James, so I I compete far at a much higher level. I have more energy. uh, I recover from injuries quicker, and I race harder and faster. And also, I I really feel better for it. And I also know personally I'm doing whatever I can to reduce a little bit, uh, have a little bit less suffering in the world, and obviously going a long way towards protecting our environment. I honestly just couldn't do eating, eating meat. Honestly, I just couldn't do it. I haven't eaten meat for seven years, but if I did under sufferance, I, I could, I guess. But certainly, I, I feel a lot better within myself, health, emotionally, physically, whatever, by by doing this. I certainly haven't sacrificed in any way. It's not time. just, I wouldn't use the word sacrifice then, but it is a change, you know. Oh, and it sure. requires logistics, planning, and sure. intention. It doesn't just happen out of nowhere, you know. So it in that sense, it's an effort. It's an effort to, to get on board. To learn to cook again, well, you know. To, learn to, to find your own produce, to even source, you know, your own produce. I mean, it's in the same bloody shop. What are you talking no, no, about? No, no, no. What I'm saying is now it's net, you know, like vegan meat substitutes. You know, um, all these types of things. You know, what's your favourite one meat or whatever it's called? All these alternatives have come in now to make <laughs> it easier for people like James and myself to go and eat a traditionally tasty burger that doesn't taste like meat. Yeah, look, I agree. To, to, to achieve whole-scale whole you know, global change, it needs to be simple and convenient. And obviously the plant-based yeah. meat alternatives are doing a, a great job in doing that. Yeah, but indeed. I, I feel as though we've got way off topic. <laughs> oh, it's cool though. But I guess one thing to just remind, it's not. I think definitely meat is key in this, but also buying from small-scale local producers is really important because just the mass production of vegetables and I mean cereals predominantly is also not sustainable like the issues associated with that mass production are really significant as well so looking for local small scale is buy local which is it's good for so many different re- reasons now James where, where to from here I mean um, you, you've what you're 10 years into this now you're a part of this sort of amazing research group What's on the horizon? What's uh, what's bubbling away uh, in Byron Bay, and um, and what, what's next for you? Well, I am working with a bunch of different people on a bunch of different things. Really, um, I'm working with a team from the University of Queensland on a it's a coastal restoration protocol setup. So that's for a 
an NGO called Conservation International. They're American-based, big NGO, and it's trying to really work out what steps people need to take anywhere in the world to restore their coastal land and different ways that they can achieve that. So how can they get financing and what is available there, what things they need to consider like like hydrology assessments, what's the coast actually like, what's going to come back, and is it going to be community-focused, is it going to get government on board, is it going to be uh, industry or, you know, there's a whole bunch of things to consider. So that's one exciting and positive project. I'm also doing a bit of nitty-gritty kind of science, which is how I got involved in this. I kind of did some really chemistry-focused, hard kind of research papers on on a bunch of mangrove stuff. So I'm doing one with a team in, in the Indian Sundarbans. The Sundarbans is the world's single largest mangrove forest. Wow. So it's looking at, yeah, carbon cycling and export from the Indian Sundarbans. Awesome. Have you been? Have you, have you been in India recently? Is that right? I went there in twenty start of twenty twenty one. Yeah, with a that was a crazy research trip at the mouth of the Ganges, oh, wow. which is like the most polluted, yeah. you know, place. So it was a pretty full on environment to. Wasn't that the height of COVID as well? Like in India, oh, no, start of twenty twenty one. Ah. Was it? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. It must have been start of 2020 then. It was before oh, okay, COVID. Okay, 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 okay. Sorry. Yeah, cool. Wow, time oh, one, one question, uh, and I mean, we didn't wrap this up uh, at some point, but one question I had for you in relation to just uh, obviously there's benefits associated with enhancing existing uh, or mangrove environments, but what about obviously world, worldwide mangroves are, are performing a very important function in carbon sequestration in their current state, but I'm guessing they're under a lot of pressures, you know, what climate change, sea level rise, et cetera. Is that is that significantly impacting their ability to perform their current role? Yeah, I mean, the major threat really is conversion, right? So cutting down, converting to shrimp ponds and palm oil plantations and stuff like that. That is the major threat to, to mangroves. And kind of climate change is less of a threat to mangroves, I would say. They're pretty wow. adaptable. Wow. That's um, that, look, that's good news. Like obviously we hear from like the reef environment, for example, there's some very doom and gloom statistics around the impacts of climate change. But Yeah, well, actually my PhD was on climate change impacts of mangroves and up in the Gulf of Carpentaria I did a bunch of work on this massive climate-driven dieback event that happened there. Mm. So that was one standout and really alarming loss of mangroves from climate change. About a thousand kilometers of coastline between the southern Gulf of Carpentaria and Darwin all died within a month or two. And it was driven by this extreme high pressure system. So uh, it's kind of like an anti-cyclone. And at the, uh, there was a failed monsoon the year before. And then during a monsoon, we had record high uh, land temperatures and sea temperatures, this right. really climate extreme. So part of climate change, which isn't talked about that often, is kind of climatic extremes. The wets get the wet gets wetter, the dry gets drier, and all the extremes kind of become more exacerbated. It is a complex little story, but so up there, the Gulf of Carpentaria is this unique little little sea. It was actually a freshwater lake about ten thousand years ago, um, before sea levels rose when you could walk to yeah, wow. uh, Papua. So what was once a big freshwater lake now is this shallow sea and it has 
it's strongly influenced by a weather system. So mm. when we had this big high-pressure system, big strong high-pressure system in the middle of a drought, the sea levels dropped. So the pressure of the atmosphere actually pushed down the sea level. Wow. Opposite of when you have a cyclone coming in, you get a storm surge, which is where pressure release from the atmosphere allows the ocean to, to rise up a bit. So opposite of that up there. It's interesting trying to explain the hydrology because mm, it's such mm. a foreign concept. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but the weather really does, does influence sea levels. Just in, in the big oceans and with big tides, you don't see that effect. But in a smaller smaller ocean, you do see it. That dropped sea level, it stayed low for a month or two and tides coming in and out. And it kind of just made the whole the whole system just dry out to an extreme level. And as it dried out, the chemistry of the mud caused a massive release of iron in the sediments. And iron is typically bound up in pyrite. So I don't know if you've heard of acid sulfate soils, mm-hmm. but yep. mangroves are essentially an acid sulfate soil, but they're just normally stable under, under seawater. Mm. So they dried and they oxidized and the iron was released and the trees were super stressed because it was so dry. Mm. And this big release of iron, it's like a big release of salt. So the plants take up whatever's in the water and have to try and get rid of that. Essentially, they have to try and get the iron and that's probably the last straw for that forest. So, Wow. And will they recover? They are recovering, yeah. I went up there a few years in a row and they are bouncing back. Definitely. Uh, I mean, there was so much seed stock and everything there. And it's a massive, pristine area. So, like, this huge dieback in a pristine forest is really unprecedented globally. Um, nothing like that has happened. Mm. And, wow. yeah, but and it's kind of, it was quite alarming, I think, as a climate change event because, you know, mangroves weren't really on the radar as something that was threatened by climate change. You mm. know, sea level rise, they can move fast and move in line inland with rising seawaters and you know the main threat is just going to be humans you know cities agriculture people buddy people you know the- and you mentioned cutting down mangrove forests for palm oil trees is that is that a key yeah in malaysia there's been and in you know like a lot of the world's mangroves i think almost half of the world's mangroves are in indonesia so indonesia and malaysia they have these like things like palm oil and and the main one is um shrimp and aquaculture ponds on the coast. Yeah. So they cut down forest. They stay productive for a while, like say 10 years, but then they lose productivity. So some productivity is coming from the ecosystem that was there with the, with the existing mangrove forest. And then once it loses, once it stops working properly, they move on, clear more forest, start new, wow. new ponds. And that's a massive release of carbon. Um, yeah. Because especially in the tropics, the, the mud just stores so much carbon. So you release that, you expose that to the air and it just gets released. And with this blue carbon calculator, obviously it's focused on Australia, I'm guessing, but could it be, is, it, is the plan to extend it into, you know, Indonesia and Asia and the rest? If, of- if I get a chance, for sure, I would love to get involved in more in projects overseas. I mean, this because it was funded through the Australian government. Yeah, that they were just focusing here and we really just focused it completely on Australia. We only used Australian data. Mm-hmm. We didn't look elsewhere. And some places just don't have that much data in, to make this kind of calculator. You have to use the other method, which is the VERA method, where you kind of go and measure it as you go and do like a mm-hmm. little study site, which is more 
complicated and time consuming and costly, but still works, you know, it, but it just means that only bigger scale projects will happen. Mm. Uh, so I was just chatting with a team that are in the Amazon and the Brazilian government is like funding for, I think it was 250,000 hectares of coastal land to be restored Yeah, along the Amazon coast, which is amazing, you know. And this is the thing, this whole blue carbon scheme is a way of incentivizing all this sort of stuff. Like it's almost, and whether carbon dioxide is sequestered out of the atmosphere in Australia or New Zealand or Papua New Guinea or wherever, it doesn't matter. It's still coming yeah. out of the atmosphere. And yeah. I would have thought that, the, the probably the, the the big opportunities are if you're saying half of the world's mangroves are in Indonesia. Gee, was that yes. where I'd be taking my methodology and, totally. and money? And, and and you know, Jeremy looked up the price of carbon before, but surely we know that the price of carbon is only going to increase over time. Yeah. So if there's a way of sort of you know getting on board early as an investor to yes. you know to to buy these areas of land and and go okay, I'm going to make some money out of this as opposed to making palm oil or, 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 or fish. Yeah. Um, or engage yeah. with local communities there to yeah. restore their coast and, you know, try and get some funding to, to these, you know, places in the world that could do with some funding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a form of foreign aid. Look, it's a, it's a very exciting project. I feel as though we've only scratched the surface and obviously you've been living and breathing this for a while, but... It's been great chatting with you today. Likewise, um, guys. Yeah, yeah. I'm real. I'm really excited to actually see what happens because obviously, getting back to our original discussion around this is the decade of change. Yeah, this is the decade of change. But if if we can sort of expedite these initiatives and incentivize the protection of our natural systems, all the better. Indeed, yes. I think that is for me the key message is that using natural systems to to take up carbon, but to give all of the additional benefits, like that is just. That is the key to our problems right now, you know. We need to just maximise that in all of the ways. And Regen Ag can play a role in that too. Uh, maybe not. I would really focus care. on the grazing, <laughs> but there's so many aspects to Regen Ag, right? So Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah I think um, if we just focus on grazing, then we're missing out on a lot of the benefits of regenerative agriculture. But, yeah, transforming agriculture is going to be part of this as well. And, yeah, really looking at the whole landscape to rewild it um, as much as we can and to get financial incentive for rewilding landscapes. Like for me, that is exciting, you know. Brad, I think we've been this plane. James, thanks so much for coming on our little show. Mate. <laughs> it's always, it's, uh, it's, it's the coolest job that we get to do. We talk to um, people around Australia, all around the world and, um, and we learn heaps every single time. So oh, yeah. I, we tend to go away with more questions than answers, but um, yeah. Mate, thanks for coming on our show and I um, look forward to getting back on and uh, hearing what you've been up to. Legends, yeah, I appreciate it. It's a really cool podcast. <laughs> boom, boom. Boom, boom. Shade room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.